Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. How can you organise, listen and sensibly engage everybody in a conversation about a possible or preferred future? Are we trying to agree on what we think the future might be or should be? Or are we trying to use our differences in order to learn more about ourselves, others and the future itself? And also what's really nice is that if you're working with heterogeneous groups, like I did between 2012 and 2014 in the Congo, we worked with young adults from Brussels and from Lubumbashi and put them together and they had to co-create their images of the future. And then we put them together with artists. While the differences between the European and the African participants in the beginning were something that they focused on a lot. As soon as the artists were added, they were the funny ones, the, the ones that were different. And these young people suddenly saw all their similarities rather than their differences. That is Maya van Limput. She's the UNESCO Chair on Images of the Future and Co-Creation at Erasmus University in Brussels. And she was my guest on FuturePod today. Welcome hello. to FuturePod, Maya. Thank you, Peter. And hello. How are you? I'm pretty good. So you've said you're a fan of FuturePod, so you know the first question is the one that all the listeners love to hear, which is the story question. Yeah. So what's the Maya story? How did Maya become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Well, I guess my story starts when I finished my master's in communication in Brussels and I set out to do my PhD at the University of Westminster in London. And what I knew I wanted to do was I wanted to study television. This is why I went to London, because this is like public yep. service television heaven, or it was at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I went there knowing that I wanted to combine a content analysis and a discourse analysis with a production study. Because generally in media research, there were lots of people doing content analysis and then drawing conclusions about production. <laughs> and I thought we needed to actually combine the two. Yeah. I knew I wanted to study television. I'm really television generation. I grew up with it from the beginning. It still exists. And I love how television actually combines the good and the bad and the smart and the mind-numbing, puts it all together, and that this is actually what defines that medium. And so I needed a theme for this discourse analysis, and generally the content analysis of media at the time, and still today actually, it limited itself to just a few themes. You have like gender and race stereotyping, the representation of crime and violence, maybe terrorism, sex on television. That would be like the themes that were usually selected for this kind of work. And I wanted something else. At a certain point, my partner and I were talking about what I would do. And we ended up thinking about this idea that maybe it, I could look at television about the future. It has some real advantages and that I understood at the time already before ever having even heard of future studies or foresight. And so the reasons I knew at the time were threefold plus one. And the first one was that 
it was a topic that would allow me to look at a really wide range of programs. It would allow me to do a cross-genre study. So I could have fiction and non-fiction. I could have series and single programs. And I thought that was a real advantage. But I also understood that there are really very few themes that encompass such a variety of subtexts and possible narratives as the future does. And the future really doesn't preclude any topical focus. And we say the futures of X, Y, or Z. And so I really like that in order to put the future on screen, you have to imagine it first. The challenge to producing programs about the future is even greater than producing other kinds of programs. And I thought that was really interesting. The fact that there is never a set already existing that's Mm. waiting for the cameraman, that it all (laughs) has to be thought up by the makers. And since I wanted to study production, that was a real advantage to this topic for me. And then specifically in the context of public service television in the UK at the time, I thought it was also important that Futures is a contested space in public debate. And that even if it's not sufficiently explicitly contested, if you ask me, but at the time my focus was on that too. Like how does television actually take that responsibility of making this a subject we can all talk about and to putting it out there and At the time, so my focus was on public debate, and today it still is, but now it's come to include this possibility just of gathering and of joint undertakings of spaces for all kinds of dialogue that Futures offers. And then the plus one, (laughs) so these were the three, and then the plus one is that I noticed that television professionals thought it was a little bit weird, but also a little bit cool to look at the future as actual subject matter. Because they got reactions like, hmm, but the future, we don't have a department for that. But generally, the people I needed to interview were really curious and gave their time generously. And I still find that's the case when I tell people I want to talk with you and I want to talk about the future, that they think it's it could be fun. And I did have fun with the topic during my PhD and the people I talked with seemed to be the same. And I believe that's a really serious advantage for what you're trying to do. For me, it was always really satisfying to see these professionals go, Aha, yes, you're right. It's about the future. During my PhD research, I got one golden tip from my supervisor who knew nothing about futures, right? He's a broadcasting theoretician, so very different angle. He did give me a golden tip, and I actually talked with Andrew Curry in 1996. Only many years later, we reconnected being part of the same community, but I thought... I know that's my first futurist (laughs) at the time. Also, there were actually surprisingly few futurist references in the bibliography of that PhD. I had Pollack. Fortunately, images of the future for this subject was really important. And Maruyama, Bolding, Toffler. But I think at the end of my PhD, I was ready to become connected to the futurist field, but I wasn't yet. And then in my first postdoctoral research project, that's where that happened. 
So it was always the intention to connect a practical to my thesis. So either thought maybe to produce a television program about the future myself. I learned what that would have meant and it took another 10 years before I did. My partner was studying fine art at the time. He's a photographer and a cameraman. And together we developed this independent postdoctoral research project. It's a mixed practice project and we called it Agence Future. The idea was that after collecting mediated televised images of the future, it would also be really interesting to hear what was going on in people's hearts and minds and how people actually think and feel about the future. And we set up this project by which we traveled with two recumbent bicycles, laid back, feet first, yep. five continents, 27 countries. It was between 1999 and 2003. We held 382 conversations, one in five with people who, like in their daily practice, had some kind of explicit forward-looking perspective, but not necessarily futurists. There's actually only half a dozen futurists in that series. We had a semi-structured interview schedule and we really bet on mixing different fields of practice. So I was doing research and my partner, well, making photos and creating visuals. And neither of us were really journalists, but we also took like journalistic questions in, into the mix. And also we insisted that when people had ideas about the future, that we we try them out. We would actually experiment with them. And that was really educational. I, it's a great start. Television is such an interesting technology for <laughs> broadcasting images of whatever, yeah. let alone broadcasting images of the future. And mm. in my generation, television was seen as being futuristic itself. It's obviously less so now. Given that you know that I've got an interest in Polak and particularly that images of the future generate culture, generate energy are their own little philosophical worlds. Does any of that weaves Polak and that whole notion of essence optimism and influence of what is broadcast? Having broadcast makes a real difference in how we distribute and share our images of the future. And it provides different kinds of options for how to bring them across. I like media-rich accounts of the future for the same reason people like experiential futures because they give you like a different experience of the ideas in these images of the future and they bring you closer and they make things more real the problem that television professionals always put to me was that you can't go to the future and shoot there yeah. There's no doing that. And I don't think your question was about that, but it was about this, the way that people actually begin to share the same stories and the same images because broadcast implies that there's like a large number of people seeing the same content. I suppose, Maya, it's a very crude piece of analysis by me that I'm sure you can improve. But if you think of just the generic Polak four images and you imagine what as portrayals of futures... Really, it seems that television and a lot of media tends to prefer futures that belong in the lower left of Polak, that the future is hopeless, that where people don't have power, where the future's going wrong. 
that is almost the default setting for so many images of the future. You very rarely see media try to portray futures other than that kind of dystopian side. Maybe that's just because that actually makes better television. Yeah, so there is that thing in news studies that's really well known. Bad news is preferred over good news because it's got better attention to the narrative. If it bleeds, it leads, I think is the saying, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. In the Mm. 90s, I found that all the eschatological futures, all the negative breakdown type stories were mostly in the fiction. So you'd Ah. have post-apocalyptic, even animation series for children and movies, and they were all in the sample. And then in the non-fiction, so that's the Tomorrow's World and Horizon, which is uh, these kinds of programs, the experts got to tell Ah. you how the future was going to be more and better (laughs) and either bigger or much smaller. And and then at the same time, when you had less images in non-fiction, you would have these end-of-world, strange American weirdos or something like that explaining how they saw the end of the world. And so that was actually a major motivator for me to think that's not right. That's not the mix that's really out there. There's not just the experts telling us everything's going to become fantastic and techno-optimism and all that. And then... On the other hand, crazy end of world profits. It's there must yeah. be a lot more than that. And that's also why I started to want to not just look at media content, but also talk with real people. Yeah. I think it was Robert Junk when I read one of his pieces of work and it was back in the sixties, mm-hmm. he studied what experts said about the future and what yep. non experts said. And his conclusion was the experts saw the future as being bigger, faster, better, shinier. (laughs) And the non-experts saw the future as being continuation of the people who have power still have more power. The people who have less power have even less. For people whose life is difficult, the future is going to be harder. For people whose life is easy, the future is going to be easier. And Jung's conclusion was if you do a backcast on who was the more accurate It was the non-experts that were more accurate in forecasting the future because the experts just didn't understand the world they lived in. I don't know whether it would have been the same then, but my finding with experts was also that they were much more hesitant or they are much more hesitant to talk about anything that's not within their expertise. And they want to talk about, if they're demographers, they want to talk about the changes in our population, the constitution of our population. But if they're biologists, they want to talk about biodiversity. And then if you ask them to talk about anything else, they go, yeah, but I don't know. And it's like, yeah, you're the same like all of us in that. And I think that was the main difference I found between experts and non-experts. They're also how much they were prepared to also consider that thinking about your own individual future is also relevant. And so in 2005, I became a member of the World Future Studies Federation. I think that to me counts as, okay, now I've found my connection to this field and this community. And and that's actually for me where that story ends, but it doesn't because, Mm. um, yeah, it... There were always new projects and new things to learn, and so, yeah. Omaya, you're interested in not just dialogue, 
really you're interested in this ability to talk our way through different futures. That we're not trying to just work out what the future is going to be by staying in our safe little box of expertise, that we need to get into the uncomfortable, I don't know what's going to happen with technology and culture and ageing and biology and everything else, and yet we still can imagine futures and talk about them. And you're very passionate about this notion of polylog. Do you want to just talk to the listeners about polylog? Okay. I use polylog as like an ideal model in the four-year research program for the UNESCO Chair on Images of the Future and Co-Creation. This is at my school in Brussels, the Erasmus Brussels University. And what our sort of main research question mixes up a few things, and it's about how media, art, and design can actually contribute to nurture and improve scaled and intertwined polylogs for the co-creation of images of the future. (laughs) So that's a lot of parts. (laughs) Wow. We're thinking about how can we actually co-create images of the future with heterogeneous groups, and this concept of scaled polylogs I knew it from Lars and John Sweeney's article where they suggest that we need to negotiate our way towards a new normal. This is in post-normal times thinking. And and they ask the question like how you organize, listen and sensibly engage everyone in a discourse that can actually help us think about possibilities and our images and preferences together. I like the idea that by engaging, you could actually create the space for that kind of engagement. By setting up exchanges, this space would actually make itself. And I thought if we have more and more of these exchanges or we recognize where they are taking place, this space for for mutual exchange can become greater and more well used. And they insisted that polylogs require the creation of a new physical and mental spaces where diversity, pluralism, and contending perspectives are present on their own terms and also deeply invested in engaging others in creating and sharing information and knowledge. Now, that sort of sounds to me like a really good way of co-creating images of the future. Yeah. One of the things that certainly Zia talked about in his podcast and he and John wrote about is Given post-normal futures, given we're in the not now, not yet space, we're in that space of where what was in the past is no longer what is what we're moving into. They talk about this notion of actually unlearning in order to learn. Yes. That we're not actually moving towards consensus. We're actually learning to unlearn the things that are holding us back to allow us to actually co-create. And that to me is quite a distinct thing that is not often taught for people. Yeah. And the thing that attracts me most, and you described that, you're not looking for consensus. The idea of these different voices coming together is not for being merged into a single perspective or for being subordinated to a single (laughs) authoritative voice. Each of these voices has its own perspective, its own validity, and its own narrative way. That's what makes it an ideal model, right? (laughs) Because in the world, 
we don't really have that kind of equality when we have our exchanges. When I was running a series of workshops with cultural workers in Antwerp, with rather high levels of cultural centers and people like that, and they, they were really worried when we began the workshop series and said, yeah, but we're going to talk and we all have different views. And then in some kind of lowest common denominator of that is going to come out. And that's going to be like a really weak soup. It's not going to really be an interesting thing anymore. And even though we were aware and happy that they all had a different point of view and that this was exactly why they were getting together, they couldn't even imagine that it was not to come to some kind of a consensus where they all agreed on what needed to happen with culture in Antwerp in the next 15 years. So I think that's one important thing that we really have to unlearn, that we can have constructive and useful and even practical exchanges without this requirement of consensus. Is that what the UNESCO chair is about, this notion of images of the future and co-creation? It's not just the image. It's almost the co-creation that that actually is the foundation of the images and it is a plurality of images. They're not actually working as a set or working as a system. They're often in conflict or bouncing off one another. Yes, it's about co-creation. It's about all the different ways in which we already do it and how else we might be able to do that. Because as I started out with analyses of images of the future on television, I understand that those are images that I didn't co-create. I'm just consuming them. Mm. And, but they were co-created by other people. Yes. And I thought that the interesting idea in the post-normal version of Polylog is that they are scaled. Even the smallest conversation is actually a polylog if you have this equality of the voices. So what we are doing with the chair is it's kind of action research. We're trying to find groups who already have a futures orientation but are not futurists or they are just engaging somehow with the not yet. And we want to support these activities but also connect them to each other so that... All these futures-oriented activities of different scales and scopes can actually also influence each other. We find them, they are separate from each other, but at a certain point, per geographical cluster, we put these people all together and we say, go again, you've been co-creating in your own context, which I think is really important a lot of the time. We set up Tory Futures projects with a given theme for a somewhat group or an organization that is interested in this particular domain. And then we try and find the right participants and we invite them into our project. And so what I think is really interesting is to find groups and people who are already engaged and somehow in this forward-looking activities and then adding ourselves into their projects rather than inviting people into ours. It's I think it's a better form of inclusivity. For me, it's important that we don't say, hey, this is interesting and you ought to be talking about this and come to us and we will help you talk about it. Instead, I go, what are you talking about? Ah, yeah, 
that's something I can also talk about. And now we add ourselves to that. And also a lot of the time we work with artists or with organizations in the cultural sphere. But even if the activity is not by itself an artistic activity, I think it's really interesting to put media, arts, design, processes and people in this conversation because they have a, a different perspective. They're more used to this generative mode where you put something new into the world. They're not scared to do that. And also what's really nice is that if you're working with heterogeneous groups, like I did between 2012 and 2014 in the Congo, we worked with young adults from Brussels and from Lubumbashi and put them together and they had to co-create their images of the future. And then we put them together with artists who were going to produce a piece together with a mixed group of young adults. While the differences between the European and the African participants in the beginning were something that they focused on a lot. As soon as the artists were added, they were the funny ones, the, the ones that were different. And these young people suddenly saw all their similarities rather than their differences. There's that making the future real part that you can really achieve, that you can get closer to with media arts and design approaches. And, and that's often the trouble. People feel like, yeah, but we're just philosophizing. And I'm just learning how you're thinking, but you're entirely different in an entirely different context. But as soon as these images also become tangible somehow, you can actually see something or touch it or smell it or become something that you can somehow already experience in the present, then the attitudes do change. I think that by itself, polyphony is a really nice model. But I also think it's really nice if inside that polyphony there's these media arts and design processes and people to help the process along and also for different kinds of results. You touch on an interesting point, Maya, which is just an observation that our discipline or our field, our community, we do have a... I'm not going to say preference, but we tend to write down a lot of words about the future. <laughs> so we tend to have a prose approach to explaining what the future could be. And we actually, not as a natural process, do we move into the visual imagining, objectifying of a future. And I wonder if that's something that you think is changing and will continue to change in the way that people who do what we do do it in the future. I'm not sure that it's the objectifying that is the bit that's the most interesting in what you achieve by making futures more imaginable by with visuals for example you have all these words and these papers and reports but now how to relate that to the real experience of our lives and how yeah. to make it not just something that's possible, maybe far away. It renders proximity. Ah. I think that's important. Lovely. And it brings you closer to these future possibilities, but it also brings the future possibilities closer to you. And then I think that that does have an effect also on influence optimism People understand their own agency better when they are closer to imagining 
what all these ideas about the future actually could concretely mean in our lives. You asked about visualizing the future, how it's helpful. And we have this experiment where I ask a bunch of futurists to fill in an order form for an image of the future. And my time traveling husband will go and take that picture in any future of your choosing. And and we've done this in Taiwan in 2015, amongst others. And when I wrote about it, I found myself saying, yeah, you know what? They always say that a picture is worth a thousand words, but somehow I can't write this paper in five pictures. 5,000 words to translate them into five pictures. They are just different ways of communicating. They are different ways of relating what you find in reality. And they do different things and they need to exist together, I think, these, all mm-hmm. these words that we write. And these visuals and these features and these experiences and designs. Thanks, Maya. I'm going to pivot on that lovely term you just introduced, this notion of proximity and how we experience the proximity to ideas about the future. Mm -hmm. This is the question of what are the emerging futures that seem proximate to you, that are, that you're both experiencing and reacting to, either moving towards them or possibly even wanting to either reject or push away. I want to talk about the personal first or the individual first. I just had my birthday and I realized I could actually start planning like in five-year plans. Like, <laughs> I saw that, oh, yeah, in 15 years' time, I'm going to be 69. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, wow, yeah. So what? now this time became something else again. So I'm thinking about that quite a bit at the moment. And we're planning for the rest of the chair program with Agence Futur and Open Time and the BFS because all these groups are involved in the poly work to return also to places where we've been in the beginning of the 2000s and go and actually have these polylogs in these places and use the material that we collected before there. And so I'm actually quite excited about what might be coming when we actually start to do that and we do visit Australia and we go back to Lubumbashi and we continue our work there. And so on the personal level, I think, although it's a little bit scary, it's also very attractive and I'm looking forward to finding out what it's going to be like. I suppose, Mayo, it just struck me that given you've got this tremendous enthusiasm for promoting and promulgating polylog, but as we get older and we understand that there'll be a point where I am not doing this anymore, Yes, it seems to me part of the kind of future is the future that you have, in fact, passed this on. This is not something that Mayo does or Mayo is needed for, that people now see polylog as just the way they do things, or in fact, the best way of doing things. I want people to understand that concept and use it as a model. I think that if polylog is just already taking place more, if people actually just learn to have these open, non-hierarchical conversations and explore together and understand that they're learning together because of their differences, there is an enormous amount of polylog already taking place. Yeah. And just feeding it and practicing with it right now may make it a little bit stronger in certain spaces where it mm. can continue. 
And it's not like I feel like I need somebody else to follow and be the missionary for Polylog. I always find the missionary aspect of Future's work a little bit questionable, although not as well. We're constantly communicating and trying to bring that aha moment to other people. And yeah. But at the same time, especially as a European, say in the Congo, as a Belgian in an old colony of my country, you really want to be careful about that and understand that we really want to come and see what the thinking is that's already present there and then take part in that and make the diversity of the conversations that are being had greater by adding your perspective as well. And if I can give that reflex to a few of my students to have conversations with people about the future and to not be scared when that there are opposing points of view and that you have the conversations in good spirit and then yeah, I'm not sure that this is going to be like the life-saving concept. I'm sure it's a really good practice and very helpful and that we need to practice it as much as we possibly can to unlearn all these more hierarchical and boxed-in ways that we as exchanges in otherwise. So this is the only question I didn't prepare like notes for, because if a non-futurist journalist would ask me, I would automatically revert to for generic alternative images of the future and talk about that. There are many different possibilities and within each of these possibilities, there's the good and the bad. It's not like a best case and a worst case. These kinds of caricatures of reality, I don't expect to find them in the future like we don't really find them in the present. When you ask the question, and you put the emotion of your relationship to the futures that you see emerging around you quite central, or at least in my reception of that question, it was like that. What's scary is the idea that that I can see the possibility for um, diversity and opening things up. There is also this movement towards closing things down and limiting them and top-down insistence on some type of standard that I never agree to and I'm sure that other people can also object to. So I think that maybe that's also why polylog is important to me because that's a picture of a good way to move ahead for Mm. me. That does seem to be one of the big contests that we're seeing around the world as to how we create narratives to deal with post-normal futures and Mm. the polylog I imagine is saying let's embrace the post-normal let's learn from it let's learn from each other let's generate the understanding from the complexity and post-normality and the Opposite, of course, is to simply say, no, it isn't that complicated. I can tell you the way the world works. I can tell you what's good. I can tell you what's bad. And what's interesting, Maya, is that when you put it into a democratic process, is which one creates the majority? At the moment, it's half every year. It is. On Brexit, we had half on the presidential elections in the US. We have half-halves everywhere. Here, Here we have it too now. Yeah. You would say as a polylogist, (laughs) (laughs) 
that you would hope that people, when they're given the chance to dialogue without without limit, would move and accept that. And yet if you look at people's behaviours, you actually see what seems to be a retreat from complexity, a retreat from post-conventionality. Yeah. And hence this contest of how we will talk about the future or we won't talk about the future. (laughs) I'm not sure it's a context. So I work with uh, an arts collective in Brussels and they're called the Birds Without Heads, (laughs) which is also (laughs) a really nice Belgian dish, by the way. (laughs) But the idea is that we are really very polylogical. We're very flat structure and all of us have our own contributions depending not just on our own constitution, but on the day and the week and the period. And it has helped me understand that Doing, practicing polylog as much as you possibly can in all these different contexts, flattening the hierarchy in the classroom, having a collective where everybody else is a visual artist, but I'm there like, I don't know, the mad professor or something like that. (laughs) And we can all to exchange and we can actually, even if the other side wins this contest, continue doing that. You don't have to have anybody's permission, don't need this authority to agree that this is what we should be doing. And I think that it's important that we do what we believe is right also and the way that we think is right and that we also allow ourselves to make mistakes and to be caught up into the oppositional types of conversations that are all around us all the time at the moment. Like you say, these two are really colliding. People call it polarization and all the scary things that might be coming in the future that it is your friends and the groups that you can actually be in connection with and relate to, that this is the space where you can actually still find the potential for better. <laughs> yeah, if somebody wants to simplify it, if somebody wants to talk about there are clear rights, wrongs, up, down, black, white, then you can polylog with that. <laughs> sure, exactly. Uh, People expect a lot of of controversy, though. It's like the bad news thing that we talked about Mm. at the beginning, where bad news has got a better narrative tension, and so Mm. this is more popular, and it's easier to clash with each other than to find ways to inquire about, but how is Mm. it that you interpret it like that? And what experience does it actually relate to? And who else do you know that thinks like that? And what do they say about it? And these conversations, are they still require more effort, and that's why we need to practice them more, I think. Thanks, Maya. Communication question. How do you explain this to people, Maya, when they don't understand what a polylog is and what it is you do? So how does Maya (laughs) explain to people what Maya does when they don't know what Maya does? So I explain futures to them. I say that I'm a professional and an academic futurist and I'm also a maker, that my field goes by many names and that just like any other field, in particular in social science, There are many different schools and branches and many different reasons for studying the future and many ways to do it. And I do also always talk about that we've understood for a long time that it's impossible to predict 
And people usually agree that this is a common sense starting point. And nevertheless, a bit later, they will ask me about, yeah, but how can you know that it's accurate what you're saying? About <laughs> but they basically, in principle, they agree, but it's really hard for a lot of people to really incorporate what that means. And I insist that because it's impossible to go to the future and check out what's going on there, that you need to think about many different possibilities. And so I explain that what we do in futures is to think about possibility and how, about how people and groups imagine the future, what their images of the future are, how they are constructed, deconstructed, distributed, used and abused. And a lot of the time, people really get it when I get to abused. Ah, yeah, I can see what you mean. So a lot of the time, you need to continue a little bit about what it means to think about possibility, that you think about what could happen, how it could happen, what we want to happen, and also that we don't limit ourselves to the most likely-seeming possibilities, but seek to include beyond the extended present and familiar futures, also unthought futures, preposterous possibilities, like it's mm. called as well in Joseph Scone and far out alternatives. And then it's really high time to go back to what it means concretely that I'm doing. A lot of theory <laughs> at first. And so I explain that in my work, that means I talk with very many different kinds of people about their futures thinking and how they feel about the future. And then Usually by that time, it's really time for my conversation partner to begin to tell me something about how they themselves think yeah. about the future and why they think it's important or why it seems senseless to them. And then the conversation continues naturally from there. Also, often I have to reassure my conversation partner that it's not strange or not surprising that they haven't heard of futures before. <laughs> of this field and yeah I talk about the fact that our northern neighbors the Dutch who created their own country from the sea in a Is manner it? of speaking have much more forward-looking inclinations than Belgians in general do and then a lot of the time the conversation turns to living with uncertainty I'm not so into that embracing cavalry. I don't know about embracing, but I do tell my conversation partners that it is uncertainty itself that makes hope possible for me. Without uncertainty, yeah. I have no hope. And then finally, I want to say that I try to talk about this openness of the future and the open-ended thinking that it allows me to do. And open-ended feeling and understanding also and that is precisely because we can't know what will come and what won't, that this topic helps you to be more open in a way. It obliges you almost. And a lot of the time I would then add also that I feel good about challenging what is stuck or held back by the weight of the past and that I enjoy the depth of the connective work that it allows me to do where I talk with one person and then another person and or a group here and a group there and then somehow I bring these groups together because both of them I'm having a polylogue with one and with another and these get intertwined and so the conversation gets bigger and I enjoy that and then really finally I always thought and sometimes I tell that to my conversation partners as well that I would 
like to be a student till retirement. And so Futures does help me to keep learning. And that's what I'm here for. And I could cite more altruistic motivations, but basically it's the kind of, of topic that's, yeah, it's never going to be finished anyway. So you have this certainty of continuing, having to continue to learn. And that's what I enjoy about it. Yeah. What is really important to me is that we don't pretend that the conditions of the interventions that we set up can be kept equal in different contexts. And they need open-ended experimentation. And also people ask me a lot of the time, like, okay, but then you're going to these people with your wisdom and all that. But I think it's just to change the mix that I'm going and to add, to put in a few drops of my futures perspectives into these polylogs that people are actually already having. That's it. Maya, I don't know if this has been a polylog because it's just been the two of us. And of course, everybody who's listening to this feels like we've done a lot of circling and this and thatting. So it's probably polylog-ish. But thank you very well, much for taking some time out. Do a bit of dialoguing and polylogging with me and the FuturePod community. Thank you for having me. It's, yeah, I'm really glad that this collection exists and I'll be listening to many more episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Peter. I hope you enjoyed my polylogue with Maya. I'm sure you would agree that more than ever we need ways and means of having generative conversations about difficult subjects with diverse groups. And Maya's research and approach to this is very necessary and I hope you feel encouraged to try a bit of polylogging in the future. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support the pod, then please check out our Patreon, which you will find a link to on our website. This is Peter Haywood saying goodbye for now.